0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is Darts and Letters. Hi, I'm Ren Bangert. I'm a producer on Darts and Letters. This is a show where we deep dive into the politics of ideas we are delighted to be a member of the New Books Network community. And if you've been following along with our programming so far, you'll know that this is week two of our summer NBN series. We're presenting a selection of the greatest hits from the entire history of Darts and Letters in the lead up to our fall launch. Brand new episodes here on New Books Network starting in September. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for tuning in, and do go check out last week's episodes. Each week is following a new theme. Week one was Ideas in Strange Places, and this week we're exploring the politics of education. On today's episode, our host, Gordon Kadik, asks, have intellectuals enabled the U.S. empire? We'll look at the RAND Corporation and the broader defense intellectual industrial complex. I'll leave it to Gordon to tell you all about it. Thanks for listening.
0: Cited media. This is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart, or a left wing show about ideas, but academia, and often about our technocratic overlords. I'm a radical Democrat, that means I think people ought to have direct control over their own lives. This doesn't mean just picking between Kang and Kodos. It means being involved in an authentically deliberative and democratic process, one where you author your own future. And part of that has to be control over the workplace, the school, the city, wherever else you happen to be. You have to have a say. We do not live in that world. Forget workplace democracy, we don't even have liberal representative democracy. You may remember the famous study in 2014 by the political scientists Martin Gillins and Benjamin Page. It concluded that, quote, economic elites and organized interest groups play a substantial part in affecting public policy, but the general public has little or no independent influence. Little or no independent influence. That means your opinions don't matter. Now, if you follow the Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn tradition, you'll know there is an answer. Your preferences are never just going to be represented if you wait. That's too naive. To quote Frederick Douglass, "Power seeds nothing without a demand." So we have to be organized, and I think activism does work. Perhaps I believe it just out of self-preservation because I have to. If I don't have that, what else do I have? So. I choose to hope. But in some domains, it's really hard to keep doing that. Because the disconnect between popular opinion and elite policy is so, so stark. Here, I'm thinking especially of foreign policy, of war-making, and of intelligence. The whole national security state apparatus. We just don't have much of a say. The lead-up to the Iraq war. People protested that. In fact, it was the largest protest ever. Didn't stop it. You could tell me, well, at the time, Gordon, the wars were pretty popular. That's true, but support did plummet, and yet we stayed in. And today, think about all the post-Afghanistan propaganda. Think about the AUKUS deal, the nuclear submarines, the 5 Eyes security lines, this new Cold War. Do any regular people really want that? Well, they aren't even asked. The whole security state manages this thing. Deep State. I think that's a fair term, even if it's been co-opted by right-wingers. Well, maybe it's not exactly deep, because it's actually right below the surface, and it's extremely wide. Just read Dana Priest and Bill Arkin's 2010 series. It appeared in the Washington Post, and it's called Top Secret America. There's also a book by the same name. This indispensable piece of journalism charts the scale of Top Secret America. And we're talking about... 1,300 government departments, 2,000 private contractor companies, 850,000 people have top secret security clearance. 850,000, that's the size of San Francisco. The point is that's at least 850,000 mouths to feed. This is an industry that is clearly just too big to fail. They're never gonna make that open to democratic control, too, too risky. So why do we have our forever wars? Isn't it obvious? It's the military industrial complex. Eisenhower's warning was prescient. People say that all the time, it's become a cliche, but there's usually truth to the cliches. Today, we're gonna talk about part of that complex, a part that isn't always appreciated. In true darts fashion, we're gonna talk about the thinkers. There's at least a couple types. You've got your defense intellectuals. These are people with grand and imagined theories that inspire policymakers. This provides the intellectual engine of US empire. And there's also the experts. These are the people that do more of the kind of technocratic grunt work. They're the white collar middle managers and the calculator men. This is the ordinary work of servicing empire. These people are all over the place, especially at places like the Rand Corporation in academic departments and in these quasi-academic think tanks. As we'll see in this episode, they're part of an intellectual tradition, a tradition that hated and feared the public. They thought, we're an unthinking, unwashed, unlearned mass that's prone to frenzy. The famous French writer Gustave Le Bon popularized this. In his 1895 book, The Crowd, he argues that crowds don't really reason. In fact, they don't really use their brain. They use their spinal cords. This unthinking and unreasoning horde would be the downfall of liberal democratic society. And so they had to be managed by competent and educated elites. It may sound like a crazy fantasy to you, but I can't undersell how influential and how common these beliefs are in our modern technocratic society elitism is everywhere it's in government it's in science it's in academia and it's in the media elitism is to social science as eugenics was to medicine it's the reigning ideology it's not a far-right fantasy it's bipartisan and in fact it mostly comes out of liberal intelligentsia it's arguably still the dominant ideology of academia and in the media, it's the ideology that led the liberal journalist Walter Lippmann to argue that we must manufacture consent. Wise technocrats can decide on our behalf. At least, they can narrow down the scope of options so that we have safe and wise choices on offer. It's pretty simple. Who do you want, Kang or Kodos? This elitist ideology persists, and nowhere more so than foreign policy. Left or right, the security state agrees on one thing. The public is to be feared and to be managed. That's why you have no say. So today on Darts and Letters, we stick it to the defense intellectuals. We tell the story of how this ideology came to be, how it was institutionalized, and why it persists. I speak with historian and podcaster Daniel Bessner, and he exposes the defense intellectual complex. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network, and all this summer we're playing some highlights from our archives. But... Like Ren said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. Daniel Besner is an intellectual historian of the security state. His book, Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual, charts the rise of this elitist ideology I've been talking about. And it charts it through one man, Hans Speyer. He was a German exile who came to the U.S. and headed up the Rand Corporation's social science division. We'll get to that in a sec. But first, I want to say, when Danny isn't writing academic books about defense intellectuals, He's co-hosting an excellent foreign policy podcast
2: with Derek Davidson. It just started this August, and it's called American Prestige. We started American Prestige because we thought there was a gap in the left media space. What we want to do is analyze mainstream news from a a, a critical anti-imperialist perspective, trying to analyze news of the week in such a way where one is able to see how one would examine news if one were to adopt uh, different assumptions in most mainstream news sources. In particular, what would happen if the United States didn't dominate the world? What would happen if one assumed that the United States couldn't and shouldn't dominate the world? So each episode is half news analysis, trying to put it in a historical and structural perspective. In addition to the news analysis, we have an interview with someone where we go in depth on a subject. So for example, we have upcoming episodes on the deep history of Afghanistan, on the history of South Vietnam, um, on the history of Mexican development and a bunch of other issues related to U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. One of the
0: themes that kind of you bring up often in the podcast is sort of what I alluded to earlier, kind of the role of the intellectual, the expert, the kind of administrative state in, in shaping foreign policy and its relationship to democratic control. And so I want to ask you a little bit about this sort of history as we talk about the book, but just sort of as kind of an opening for where we are now. To put it sort of like crudely, I mean, how much democratic sort of deliberation and accountability is there in the sphere of foreign policy versus sort of other spheres? Is it any
2: different in terms of how much say we have? I think it's worthwhile to think of foreign and security policy as analogous to macroeconomic policy in the sense that most of those major decision areas, which you know should be subject to democratic accountability, what your nation does abroad and the macroeconomic decisions your nation makes, should be subject to you know the ordinary person's will in some regard, the public's will, the demos' will, is, are essentially not. In terms of macroeconomic policy, the Fed has an enormous amount of influence and other uh, organizations. Uh, macro- macroeconomic, both internationally and domestically. The Fed has an enormous amount of influence, as does, you know, the Council of Economic Advisors and other decisions within the executive branch. In terms of foreign policy, it's a similar situation. The National Security Council, the Department of Defense, the State Department, and even more so, and this is related to the National Security Council, the White House itself has an enormous amount of power. Power has been concentrated in the White House and particularly in the person of the president to the degree where foreign policymaking is largely outside the hands of of the DEMO's the public's will and you see that by the fact that you know throughout history there's been a lot of times where there have been mass protests against war and things along those lines that did have some effect but didn't have a really strategic effect on what the united states does in the world what about the intellectual where do they
0: sit sort of like where we are now like are they in universities quasi-university outfits like where does foreign policy sort of idea making happen
2: A lot of it happens in something that I've termed the military intellectual complex. So people are familiar with the military industrial complex, which refers to basically the confluence of defense contractors, Congress members who rely on these contractors for pork and other capitalist interests and and political interests in basically having war in order to make money. I think the military intellectual complex is kind of an analogous network in the sense that there's a... Network of think tanks, academic research centers, private consultancies at this point, and NGOs that are all dedicated to thinking about the United States' place in the world. So, you know, in, in 1946, Project Rand is founded. In 1948, it becomes the Rand Corporation. And that really becomes the first modern think tank. There are antecedents like the Council on Foreign Relations or Brookings, but it's really at Rand that the modern think tank emerges. And over the course of this following decades, it, it multiplies and you get a bunch bunch of different organizations, both you know nominally private, like the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or the Hudson Institute, and also think tanks, or academic research centers connected to universities, where people are really dedicated to thinking about the United States' role in the world. And when you're talking about a think tank like Rand, you know, its primary contractor is the government, and it diversifies over time, but initially, it's the government. And that's true for many of these think tanks. So what you essentially have is a privatized space, the military intellectual complex that is charged and funded and many cases by the U S government with thinking about the United States place in the world. And that is, is of course subject to almost no democratic accountability whatsoever. And so far as you know, once Congress appropriates resources to a military service, the military service could decide how it spends that money.
0: What really inspired you to take a look at it through sort of intellectual history and, and sort of the ideas of elites versus what the other approaches might be. And you know, what are those approaches exactly? What else is sort of on offer?
2: Well, actually, a lot of U.S. foreign policy does boil down to a form of intellectual history. So there's, you know, the revisionist school associated with uh, the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, with associated in particular with William Appleman Williams, and Gabriel Kalko. And they essentially argue that, you know, capitalist interests drive American foreign policy, but they do it from an ideological perspective. There is the post-revisionist school associated most coherently probably with John Lewis Gaddis, but also to some degree Mel Leffler, which focuses more on security. In the 1980s, there was something called corporatism. And bureaucratic politics, which emerged from the 1970s, which focused on the particular elements of the U.S. state. And then in the 1990s and beyond is more of a cultural turn, which focuses more on what I would consider a secondary or tertiary cause of U.S. foreign policy in the world. And that's particular culture. I focus on intellectual history for a variety of reasons. I mean, most importantly, when I was a senior in college, I interned at the Council on Foreign Relations. And as I was interning there, I found it interesting that intellectuals seem to exert some influence on U.S. foreign affairs. And this was during the height of the Iraq war. This was in 2006. So I wanted to explore how that came to be. And I also think it's a useful way, particularly in moments of change, to rethink some of the fundamental assumptions about the United States' role in the world and how foreign policy is made is by focusing on intellectual history, by focusing on, on the ideas that undergird why we do what we do both in the world and why we make foreign policy in the way that we do at home.
0: Yeah, the influence of these intellectuals really does stand out. In your work, they're fascinating characters. But one thing, and sort of like a kind of a macro question, I think there we have this broader discourse, especially now, of sort of like thinking of populist kind of post-truth politics, and and there's kind of a, a liberal panic about sort of intellectuals and scholars essentially having no influence, which clearly isn't right. But how is it that in this domain, at least, they? They really do seem to have um, quite significant purchase when perhaps within others, you know, I'm
2: thinking of sort of like climate policy or something like that, they may have less of an impact. The problem with, you know, the liberal criticism of expertise or like the decrying of the lack of expertise is that you need to look at both sides on one hand any industrial, post-industrial society is going to require experts. Things are just too complex that, you know, citizens are, in the words of Walter Lippmann, able to be omni able to, you know, direct affairs on every single issue. That's just not possible. And on the other hand, you have to just admit, experts have constantly fucked up. I mean, like, yeah. from Korea to Vietnam to Iraq, experts have constantly fucked up. And that's also true in terms of uh, um, economic policy. Look at the 2008, 2009 recession. So you also have to look at the failures of expertise in light of the fact that I do think some form of hierarchical expertise is necessary to govern in a modern state. So Democracy in Exile, Hans Bayer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual, your, your book from
0: 2018, if I remember correctly, you know, one thing that sticks out so like right in the beginning and the way you characterize him as kind of like a guy on lists or something as like one of the most important and famous intellectuals, public intellectuals, but kind of low on the list. And, you know, when I think of defense intellectuals and the sort of average person thinks of them, they might be thinking of, you know, Kissinger or I don't know, there's probably others. What was it that sort of drew you to him and wanting to focus the books so much on on his work versus sort of other options? And how would you situate him next to those types?
2: Well, what drew me to Speyer was just, I was looking at biographies of people and his path from social Democrat in Weimar, Germany, to founding head of the social sciences division at RAND was to me a very compelling one. And I wanted to trace that journey. So oftentimes academics focus on thinkers who write great books, someone like Hans Morgenthau or Hannah Arendt. But I think that frankly, those people are just much less influential on how foreign policy is made because they weren't working within the apparatus of the state itself. Focusing on Speyer allowed me to focus on someone who was a genuine intellectual and a genuine thinker, who nonetheless had a crucial role in building these state structures that still exerts such an enormous influence on U.S. foreign relations and U.S. foreign affairs.
0: So if you give me sort of like a little sort of kind of cold... You notes know, biography from you know his sort of early days in Weimar Germany to when he
2: arrives in New York what happens in his sort of early years i think Speyer is indicative of a broader trend that happens in, in the transatlantic context both in the united states and in germany and elsewhere throughout western europe and that's a, a general disillusionment with the idea of mass politics one of the the gambits that sort of socialist and left wing movements made at the turn of the 20th century was that you know you you argue in favor of democracy. And once you have mass democracy, people would naturally vote in favor of their economic interests and their economic interests were socialists. But what someone like Speyer begins to conclude over the course of the 1920s and the 1930s, as he sees the rise of movements like Nazism on the right and communism on the left that are hostile to parliamentary democracy, is that many people are actually don't don't have the ability or they're either too ignorant or disinterested in politics to you know make the quote-unquote right political choices, which in this case would be an, ad- an adherence to some sort of social democratic politics. He becomes increasingly skeptical with mass politics over the course of the late 1920s and early 1930s. And once, when Hitler eventually rises to power in 1933, when he's appointed German chancellor in January 1933, it's a big César when, when someone like Speyer begins to conclude that the major battle of the day really isn't between capitalism and communism or socialism, but is rather between those who are pro-democratic and those who are anti-democratic. And you see a lot of similar language used today amongst, amongst liberalism, right? This is a founding moment of liberalism. And so I think it's that conclusion that really guides him for the rest of his life, the trauma of Nazism and the the traumas of mass politics um, and and the fact that he attributes Hitler's rise really to a a mass political formation uh, leads him to become ever more skeptical of democracy. The problem, however, is that, you know, to be a a Democrat, you need to believe in democracy. So what Speyer winds up doing is he winds up constructing an argument for crisis, which essentially uh, argues that because there's a crisis first with Nazism and as after the end of World War II and the advent of the Cold War, with communism in the Soviet Union, it becomes legitimate to essentially create institutions that remove ordinary people from the political process. Um, And Speyer is in particular thinking of an organization like RAND because he thinks intellectuals are crucial members of, of a society and a state. And it's just how what particular role intellectuals are supposed to play changes over time. So when he believes in mass politics, he essentially argues intellectuals should play an educative function. They should educate the masses to make the right political choices but as he adopts a more and more jaundiced view of mass politics he essentially argues that intellectuals should directly connect themselves with state power makers and decision makers and there and use their influence not on the demos on the public but on the elites who actually make decisions and it's through that path that he winds up becoming one of the founders of rand's uh, social science division the first head of the rand corporation social science division a position that he assumes in 1948
0: This period is really, really fascinating for people who don't know it. I mean, the sort of like turn of the century to kind of the post-war time where, like you said, there's this kind of cottage industry of like democratic realists, like people who don't really believe in in the capacity for self-governance or even anything like approximating truth in politics or anything like that. I mean, he seemed as sort of a piece of Lippmann and LeBon and you know the sort of like ideas of the crowd as an unthinking, undifferentiated mass, which you know then gets kind of used by people like Bernays and the whole PR communications and propaganda infrastructure Sort of of which he's a part. If you can kind of like historicize these these figures a little bit, and so like why they come up. I mean, because this writing. I mean, especially with LeBon and Lippmann. I mean, it's it's starting before the war. Like it's starting before Nazism, and you can see early kind of iterations of it. So where does this kind of like jaundiced view of um, of
2: democracy really kind of like spring from? What, why does it come up? So I think it's inevitably connected to the rise of mass politics. When mass politics really become a thing in the late 19th century, you begin to unsurprisingly see a reaction against those politics and that, you know, I think um, foreshadows and even Embodies a lot of the later critiques, which is that, you know, when the mass comes together, you're not able to really, you know, trust them. They, or the ordinary person doesn't know enough about society to make wise political decisions. You need to rely on expertise, which is, of course, uh, a central element of the transatlantic progressive movement that the historian Daniel Rogers has examined in Atlantic Crossing. So I think, you know, a lot of the criticisms are obvious. It just depends where and why one picks them up. And in the case of, you know this generation of liberals and socialists in the 1920s and the 1930s uh, it's because of the rise of these movements that that seemed to give the lie to the claim that the masses would vote in favor of what they viewed as their own political interests and instead what happened is that the masses uh, supported interests that were explicitly anti-democratic
0: When he arrives to the United States, he comes as part of a whole exodus of kind of exiled German intellectuals. And I think most famously, people might think of sort of like the Frankfurt School, like more leftist Marxist scholars. I think you make a pretty good case in the book that their major division is the role of the intellectual in a democratic society. So tell me a little bit more about sort of like him and his compatriots and what their tensions are.
2: Yeah, so I mean, essentially the Frankfurt School conceives of themselves as providing messages in the bottle for future generations, that the failure of social democracy or communism in Germany uh, and the rise of Hitler essentially uh, destroys the Frankfurt School's political project. And they really think that even in exile, they should be writing for the future, that they shouldn't necessarily participate in a direct way in the politics of their own country. Now, this isn't totally true because the Frankfurt School is a large-ish or organization, and there are different divisions, but I'm really referring to Max Horkheimer, who is the intellectual guiding light of the Frankfurt School in the 1930s. Horkheimer essentially adopts a more aloof position from the American state, where Speyer thinks that the purpose of the exile intellectual, the intellectual in exile, is to actually use their specific knowledge in the service of the American state uh, in the 1930s in order to help defeat Nazism. So there's a different approach to intellectual exile, and the Frankfurt School becomes very. Very popular, I would say that when one is looking at the scope of American history, uh, that the people like Speyer, the intellectuals who associated with the state um, or who you know took a direct interest in, in policy making and American foreign policy making, were actually far more influential on uh, the course of U.S. history than the Frankfurt School. He seems like a very cunning political operator, or maybe it sort of happened by
0: accident. But could you tell me a little bit how? How he was able to have such success and sort of immediately court the political establishment and have them fund his brand of intellectuals in service of the state.
2: Well, I think it's important to point out that he's not Jewish, so I think that does provide him in some way more easy access to the elites of the American establishment, which at this mm-hmm. time were very white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. Even though Speyer is married to a Jew, uh, and he's really a Judeophile, and at the end of his life, he even begins searching for a mythical Jewish ancestor because he spent so much time in Jewish spaces that he actually thinks he <laughs> might be, you know, genetically. I guess that would be the word Jewish. So I think that that the fact that he's not Jewish, though particularly in the 30s and 40s, allow him a, allows him a slight easier entrance, even though there are a lot of Jewish exiles involved as well. Um, and also he's a personable guy. He's able to get along with people. He's younger than a lot of the other exiles. He, he immigrates in September 1933 when he is only 28. He's able to learn English uh, more easily than other intellectuals because he immigrates at a young age. He dedicates himself to it. He's able to join American society in, in a way that uh, a bunch of other exiles weren't. And then there's also the personal qualities that are difficult to reconstruct from archival analysis. But I'm sure he was a personable guy. He was able to get along with people. He was able to have fun. He was able to engage in the sociality necessary to become part of that emergent foreign policy establishment. He was also a very smart guy. One thing I talk about in the book is that in advance of Hitler's speech, I think in 1943, he predicts like an incredibly high amount of what Hitler would say. So he was good at his job. And then he was able to work within the institutions and the bureaucracy in order to make himself known uh, while while not ruffling any of the wrong feathers uh, to be invited into a place like Rand in the late
0: 1940s. So Rand, I mean, in this early period of Rand, I like thinking about it as a kind of quasi academic institution. I'm not sure what to make of it because on the one level, it seems kind of exciting if you're someone like Speyer, you know, it's interdisciplinary. It's plugged in politically, and it's very imaginative. But kind of at the same time, you you read about what they were working on, and it's like strange levian and bizarre and, you know, either sort of like psyops or mathematical formulas for understanding geopolitics, which seem kind of absurd. What did you kind of make of what Speyer and the whole crew there in the social sciences division was doing in the early days of RAND?
2: Well, I think they thought of themselves correctly as part of the intellectual avant-garde. And this is an idea that Sharon Gamari-Tabrizi develops in her book about Herman Kahn, another RAND analyst, is that it was fun and exciting to be at RAND. The United States, in these people's opinion, had, had essentially seized the mantle of Western civilization because Europe had destroyed itself and had the ability and desire to dominate the world and to basically lead it on a progressive path. So when you're working at RAND in favor of what we would today criticize as American security state they viewed it as you know a, a genuinely progressive force it had just defeated Nazism it was going to basically make the world into a, a progressive space and so I think people invested their hopes in the American state to, due to a variety of reasons I mean someone like Speyer was literally saved by it uh, and he literally used the apparatus of state to defeat a, a horrible um, enemy in, in Nazi Germany and so uh, I think there was a lot of um, faith in that state and I think you know a lot of the ideas that we would t- today consider like a little bit wacky, you know, the social scientists talk about like handwriting analysis or using psychoanalysis to develop like operational codes of how other governments functioned was, I think, uh, um, an example of the ferment of social science at the time. And the fact that there was a a widespread hope that, you know, the techniques and tools of social science would be able to be used to allow you to manage uh, international relations. And of course, this is an idea that first comes about in the late 19th century during the rise of the progressive movement when um, people are uh, are really arguing that, you know, you'd be able to use the new techniques and technologies of modernity to manage society in, in a very particular way and push it along a, a secularized progressive path. And I think this is what they believed. And they are, you know, in sunny California, Well, Spire isn't there. And Spire's the social sciences division is based in Washington, D.C. until 1957, but he's constantly coming out to California. And so there's this belief that, you know, you're on the frontier literally in southern california and also on the frontiers of knowledge and there's a lot of intellectual excitement at rand because the government's giving you a lot of money to you know approach international affairs in interesting and new ways it was a part of like selling it to
0: the academics that joined that sort of progressive optimism like almost seeing it as kind of an anti-war position like oh absolutely war is yeah. inevitable so we have to like do it responsibly in a framework that minimizes it and minimizes its most deleterious effects
2: is that what convinced a lot of people yeah well I mean in these guys worlds you got to remember they're born or young children during World War one that's followed immediately by World War II and then they they basically very quickly analogize the Soviet Union to Nazi Germany mostly because of Stalin uh, and because because of ideas about quote unquote totalitarianism. So I think for these guys they viewed war as endemic and so what you needed to do was make war more rational, more humane, use the tools of social science to study it. Now this is important. I think this is an important distinction because Speyer was very much not a game theorist. He was very much not a quantitative ana- analyst, right? So Rand is famous for its development of game theory and sort of models of war. But that actually occurred in the economics division at Rand. In the social sciences division at Rand, people were much more into qualitative approaches because they thought international relations was necessarily a sphere in which judgment would have to prevail, that you wouldn't be able to model international relations because human interactions were simply too complicated. So some the like Speyer adopted sort of a rationalism in terms of, you know, using tools of social science while also um, recognizing that there was an inherently irrational element to international politics that you'd never really be able to bridge uh, that gap. But nevertheless, you'd be able to use the tools of social science to make war somewhat more rational and therefore somewhat more humane and somewhat less deadly.
0: In this period, I mean, how would have Speyer's like academic colleagues thought about this, but they've been sort of excited about his kind of integration in the state and, and believe the progressive kind of branding of
2: Rand or would they have thought like, Oh, you're a sellout. They would have believed it. Very few people at the time were like critical. That's really an um, artifact of the 1960s when people become much more skeptical of the American security state during and after Vietnam. That is really the downfall of that ideology. But in the 50s, this was not considered like a particularly dramatic position or a particularly out there position. So,
0: so kind of like appraising it generally as kind of an academic project, I mean, what, what work was done there by Speyer? I know he did a lot of sort of on propaganda and, and psychology,
2: but I mean, was it a value, the kind of work that he produced at Rand? That is kind of a, a, a big question. I think he had his most influence on uh, psychological warfare policy in the early 1950s when he was sent as an ambassador. To um not as like not a literal ambassador, but he was basically sent to, to Germany to analyze um the facts on the ground. And he argued that there was a small window for the United States to use propaganda to try to, you know, instantiate some sort of opposition in East Germany, which I think does affect US policy toward East Germany, communications policy in particular, and helps spur the East German uprising of uh the summer of 1953. And then, you know, I think his his most influential um thing is really governing the social sciences division and providing a space for people to freely approach problems of international relations, and in particular, providing a space for qualitative social science to thrive in a moment when quantitative knowledge is really becoming uh, de rigueur.
0: So that influence, I mean, you can talk about sort of an, on a political level and also kind of a scholarly or academic level. I mean, what impact is Rand and the whole kind of military intellectual complex have on the development of social sciences and sort of a post-war period up until today? Does it simply serve uh, the intellectuals and the power centers, or does it also have a kind of like boomerang effect on
2: the kind of traditional halls of, of academia? Rand is important because it provides another path for people who are interested in social science and international relations outside of the academy. So this is probably one of the most important legacies of Speyer, was that you know, It was not a foregone conclusion when Project RAND was created in 1946 that this thing would last. It was really an experiment, a collaboration between industry, the military, and academia. And what Speyer helps do, at least when it, when it comes to the social sciences, is ensure that this project doesn't completely fail, uh, that there is actually a place for social scientists interested in international relations to make careers, that, that you could leave the academy for a think tank like RAND and then move into the government and then move back to a think tank or move back into the academy. So the success of RAND, which was only accomplished because someone like Speyer showed that it could actually be important and influential, did create a new career path for academics and social scientists interested in foreign policy. And that you know exists today with all the, the smattering of think tanks around Washington, D.C. and elsewhere in the country and even elsewhere in the world, is that RAND helped provide this interstitial space. For social scientists interested in policy to make careers and that's extremely influential on how social science developed and uh, and how knowledge about foreign policy developed after 1945.
0: so fast-forwarding a bit through time there's the rise of speyer and rand and then there's kind of the fall during the 60s and 70s as um, popular protest Um, Against the War uh, captures also Rand and the military intellectual complex. But, you know, your book recounts sort of how there's a rise and fall and a return.
2: So why do they return after such like uh, popular mobilization against them? So this is the work of Joy Rohde, and I'm just citing her here. She essentially argues that before the 68, you know, student movement against spaces like RAND or or really on college campuses, spaces like RAND existed in kind of like a gray zone between the public and the state. But what happened with the student protests is that uh, these organizations were, were driven almost totally outside any form of democratic accountability. So the irony is that, you know, in pushing these organizations off college campuses. The irony is that these spaces now operate almost totally outside of the democratic accountability. So it's not that the defense intellectual is particularly loved by the American people or the American public. It's just that they're not on their mind. Whereas in the 50s and the 60s, you know, you could have a movie like Dr. Strangelove where a defense intellectual is the main guy. I mean, not the, you know, Strangelove is in some sense a defense intellectual. He actually receives a report from the Bland Corporation at some point in the movie. What happened though after 68 is that. That these people essentially became shadow figures, where they're not—they're just outside of, of the public sphere in a real way. Does he ever consider the question of like democratic
0: um, accountability for experts, or perhaps how such unchecked and um, kind of like secret power may corrupt an intellectual? How would you kind of appraise his philosophical or sort of like political theory approach to understanding the sort of role of the expert in relation to the masses?
2: Basically, what someone like Speyer never considered due to the traumas of his particular life experiences was that this faith and expertise might be misplaced that the fact that someone could know more uh, about a particular subject yet still lack the judgment and will to make right decisions though Speyer did recognize that at, at points you know he created uh, the political simulation what we would think of as the model UN at Rand and one of those one of the reasons he created it was to make sure that you know these people understood that his decision makers understood that judgment and wisdom was was just as crucial as knowledge so he did appreciate that. But I guess maybe his problem was that he was too dismissive of public accountability and the Demos, and that he thought that the experts would essentially function in a self self-regulat- uh, regulating way. And I think, you know, the last 20 years since Afghanistan and Iraq have demonstrated is that, you know, experts launder themselves, even though they make horrible decisions over and over again. They're not pushed out of polite society. So that self regulatory function or that self regulatory mechanism that Spire, I think, essentially assumed just doesn't. Function in actual history, and that's why you need the demos uh, to exert much more influence on policy making and who gets to make policy and where they get to make policy than it currently does. It takes us full circle to the question of sort of foreign policy and democratic control, and I'm wondering,
0: you know, maybe to wrap up here, if we can to the best we can sort of appraise the ideology, because on some level, I think your book is understanding, if not sympathetic, of like. Speyer's particular historical circumstance and the effect of Nazism, you know, but it also says like nowhere in all his writings, does he ever consider the question of like democratic accountability for experts or perhaps how such unchecked and um, kind of like secret power may uh, corrupt an intellectual. What's your theory? I mean, you said that the expert is sort of necessary, especially in these sort of domains. How do you enshrine an expert, but also make them accountable? What is that? What might that look like?
2: This is the question that we have to figure out. I don't have a, a pat answer because we'd have to really figure out exactly how the security state functions, where power lies, how decisions are made. And it's such a enormous and decentralized um, system that it's it's there's not just one answer. But I think going forward, we need to think more broadly about how to meaningfully connect the, the, the demos, the people, to some of these very crucial decisions about what the country does, um, both with itself. Uh, in terms of domestic security policy and economic policy, and also in terms of abroad, given the sheer power of the American empire.
0: That was Daniel Pessner, associate professor at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Relations. That's at the University of Washington. Bessner is author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual that came out in 2018 from Cornell University Press. And he's also co-host of the podcast American Prestige. Check it out. You can find more about Daniel Besser in our show notes and on his Twitter feed, at D-B-E-S-S-N-E-R. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn, and our assistant producer is Ren Bangert. Our managing producer is Mark Epilonio. Research from Dave Mosscrop. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber, and our graphic designs are done by Dakota Coop. And I'm your host and editor, Gordon Kadik. Send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at citedmedia.ca. Or you can tweet us at dartsandletters. While you're there, help boost the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our new YouTube channel, where we have extended interviews of many of our guests. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. This is a production of Cited Media, and we're backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of the public intellectual. The founding academic advisor of the program is Professor Alan Sands at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday.